You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I was uh, I used to teach many years ago in Camp Moshevah in Indian Orchard, right? Idol. And they had a program there called TVI. And not to be confused with TVA, the Torah Vavodah Institute. It was meant to be leadership development for kids in Nakila. And what they did was they created this separate little camp. And it was all the kids who I think were in uh, ninth grade, I think, going into 10th. It was the year before Machach Baritz. And they asked me to come teach out there. And it was amazing because these kids were, they were so into it. And they were so excited. You know, remember back to ninth, 10th grade, that's when you start having real questions. So I gave a, a series of shirim on emunah and on mitzvot. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, one day, and they had this little cabin. It was like this campus in the middle of the woods. It wasn't where TVI is. It was like down all those back roads that you always get lost when you go into a chutz. And they had this log cabin, mamash, in the middle of nowhere in the forest. And that's where we would go and learn. It was unbelievable, right? And sometimes I would take them outside and we would sit on the porch. So one day I'm giving shir on whatever the topic was, right? And uh, we talk about emunah. And... Uh, Two guys come to the door. There's no door to knock because you don't have to close the door because you're in the middle of the cabin, nobody there. And and these two guys come to the door. And I notice them, but I'm in the middle of a thought. I'm giving shear. And they look like they're Chinese. I don't know, something like that. Nepal, something like that. And uh, I was a little surprised. I had never, I mean, this is like my third or fourth year doing this. I had never seen anybody out in the middle of the woods. It's not a hiking trail. It's like you have to know where you're going. And these guys, they, they, they for sure are not Jewish, and they look like they're from China. And I thought maybe they're lost or something, whatever, but, you know, I'm finishing, whatever. But within about 30 seconds, all the kids start noticing them. So I kind of stop talking when I get a second, and I look at them and say, hello, you know, welcome, can I help you? He said, are you Rabbi Friedman? I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse me? The whole place burst last, like 50 kids, they all burst into hysterics. So are you Rabbi Friedman? Right? So I said, yeah, Vinny Friedman, can I help you? He said, oh, we have questions for you. Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> turns out, turns out that these were students of the Dalai, followers of the Dalai Lama. And they lived in, they're from Tibet, but they live in Nepal. Because if you know your history, in 1950, the Chinese went on a rampage against Tibetan monks and Dalai Lama. And thousands of them escaped over the border. Most of them live in Nepal, some in India and in the Himalayas. And, you know, I mean, I assume you've heard of the Dalai Lama as a bastion of peace, whatever, and they teach harmony and whatever. And um, it's now the 1990s, early 90s. And they have a problem. Because they dream of Tibet. And they've been struggling to gain world recognition for the fact that Tibet is not part of China. And this is a, a struggle that's still going on, and the persecution of the Chinese and whatever. And all of a sudden, they have a second generation. And this generation is coming of age, they're teenagers, and they don't know from Tibet. And their parents barely remember Tibet. And they don't really care that much about Tibet. And the generation that loves and misses Tibet doesn't know what to do. How do you, how do you engage this generation so that they won't lose their love of Tibet? So they went to the Dalai Lama to ask him what should they do. 
So what do you think the Dalai Lama said? Quarter opinion. <laughs> <laughs> he said, ask the Jews. Because the Jews have kept their love for the land over 2,000 years. Let's find out how they did it. So somehow they did research. He said 300 followers all over the world. And they discovered, um, and, and they went to different places, and they figured that if they, I, I got this whole explanation for them, they figured that it'd be smart to go to people who aren't in Israel, because if people aren't in Israel and still love Israel, then that must mean they have a system. Like the fact that Jews love Israel when they're in Israel, that doesn't help them. Can they find people not in Israel who still love Israel? And then they started to realize that there's a difference between those who kind of, you know, wear things on top of their heads and don't, those who don't. And someone told them about Bnei Akiva. And they discovered that there were Bnei Akiva summer camps. And that's, if you really want to know, you want to meet people who love Israel, go to Bnei Akiva summer camps. <laughs> and these two people, and they don't, you know, these are Dalai Lama followers. They don't make appointments. They show up, right? So they somehow find their way to, tea, to, to Camp Moshe and they walk into the office. There's a secretary there called Varda. I find this out later. And they walk in and said, you know, we're trying to find out how you and why you love Israel. Right? We need to speak to someone who teaches your youth to love Israel. Who can we talk to? So Varda said, oh, go talk to Benny Friedman. <laughs> she said, go off in the woods, whatever. I said, thank you very much. It was fascinating. So we got into a great discussion, right? But it's a good question. How are we still here? How do we, how did we hang on to Eretz Israel? Now, if you had to pick a pinpoint, a point that demonstrates this this yearning, this love for Israel, I don't think it's Avram. Avram goes to Eretz Israel because Hashem says, Lech Lecha. Now, if Hashem came to you and you knew it was a Kodesh Baruch who was talking to you, like you could debate, go to college, go to this college, that college, why you secular college, okay, all legitimate discussions. Stay shut bed, don't stay shut bed, go to the army, don't go to the army. But if no less than a Kodesh Baruch through the vestige of Rablau, but if no less than a Kodesh Baruch <laughs> came to you and said, you know, Ari Portal, you're staying in Israel, well, if God tells you that, you would do that. So Avram hears Hashem's voice. In fact, you could make a case for saying that the struggle that you have is really what Hashem is telling you. You know, by the way, just to be clear, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Aaron Cutler, right, and many, many more believed Hashem was telling them to live in Chutzlaretz. As much as I value living in Israel, Soloveitchik didn't live in Israel. Rav Cook lived in Israel. That's why I love the fact that we teach the Torah here of Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Cook. Because they're two legitimately different ways of looking at the world. But Rav Noah might disagree, but you understand, right? <laughs> so, okay. So, so, but if you don't have that, then it's not clear, but I remember you know it. Kosh Baruch tells him to go, he goes. Okay. Yitzchak, Yitzchak never leaves Israel. In fact, Yitzchak, at, at, at a certain point, there's, a, there's the same issue, there's a famine in the land, right? Vahi Rav Baaretz, Yitzchak wants to leave, right? And the Kosh comes to him and says, no, right? I'll tell you, Mitzrayim, you don't get to leave this land. Shechon Baaretz, Asher Omar Elecha, Gur Baaretz Azot. You're going to stay in this land. Yitzchak is the Olat, he never leaves. So who's the first one to leave? Of Yafot. Yaakov. Yaakov leaves, he comes back. And then he leaves again. And at the end of this life, there is an amazing line. Listen to this. Nobody else has this. Yaakov knows he's dying. He's sick. It's coming. 
He calls his son Yosef. I'm going to leave out for the moment why we say Livno Yosef. But we know Yosef, but okay. Please. What does that mean? Swear to me. Swear to me. Swear to me. That was a way that they swore. It's like I say to you, okay, promise me, or I say to you, promise me. That's a different language. Right? So they did a little weird. They were like, they grabbed the thigh. If you do this in public, they might get in trouble. But that's what they did, right? Okay. Ve'asidai madi chasid. Do with me chasid. Ve'emet. Al natik b'reini b'mitzrayim. It's interesting. He doesn't say bury me in his own. First he says, I don't want to bury in Egypt. V'shachavti mavotai u'nesatani b'mitzrayim u'kvartani b'kvuratam v'yomar anuchi asekid varecha. V'yomar hishav'ali v'yishav'alo. V'yishtachu Yisrael al-Rashamita. Right? This is the end of his life. Right? And then after that it says that, 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 that Yosef finds out he's sick and then he gives brachot, etc. But first he says... I want to be buried in Israel. I can you imagine? It's a powerful thing to say. Why does he need to be buried in Israel? In fact, why didn't he bury it at all? Like, this is not who I am. This is just the hand, this is the arm. This is just, it's a bag. It's like your tefillin bag. If chas you lose your tefillin, so you don't throw your tefillin in the garbage, you put it away somewhere nice, it was used, tashmish kedusha, it was used for a holy, but it's not tefillin. So this is the bag. What's the difference? Put it in the dirt. Gabarnu. I mean, I'm not going to do this now, but read the story here of, 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 of what it meant to bury Yaakov and he has to go to Paro and ask his permission and they have a whole Pamalia, it's a whole entourage and they have the Egyptian eulogy and then they have the Jewish eulogy and they all go to this place outside of the desert and then they go up to Eretz Yisrael. It's, like, it's not like today where you put him on an LL plane, even that's a story. This is, this is I mean, this is a month's worth of work. Because he wants to be buried in Eretz Israel. And then at the end of Sefer Breshit, the last thing you see, unbelievable, Yosef, who is the viceroy of Egypt, Vayashba Yosef at Bnei Israel Emor, he makes them swear, Pakod Yifkod Elimetchem Valitem Etatzmotay Mizeh. Hashem will remember you, but I'm swearing you to an oath that you won't forget me. That you will bring my bones home. Vayamat Yosef and and Vayechantot Vayamat Yosef ben Meir Veser Shanim Yosef dies 110. It's an interesting question. Why is that 120? They embalm him. Vayisem Baron b'Mitzrayim and he is placed in a a casket in Egypt. What's strange about that language? Vayisem Baron. Should we kill her? Yeah, it doesn't say they don't bury him. They place him. So the Medrash says they put him in the Nile. It's a whole discussion about where to and how to. Burial is the end. He's not buried because it's not over. He wants to go back to Eretz Israel. Fascinating. His sons become two of the tribes of Israel and they will bring up their children and their grandchildren and, and, and their great-grandchildren through 200 years of, of Egyptian servitude and they will maintain their identity and they will come home one day, even though Menashe and Ephraim never knew Israel. Menashe and Ephraim never saw Israel. They were born in Egypt, they stayed in Egypt. It's a big debate whether they went up to see Israel when they buried Yaakov. That's a good trivia question for a Shabbos table. But you understand? 
What's so important that you have to be buried in Eretz Yisrael? Right? And why, why, why is that Yaakov Avinu's last wish? Right? And what does it mean to be buried? Where's the first place we really find burial? That is what everybody will say. And everybody will be right, because it's true. That's the first time you find burial. But it's also not. What you're referring to is cold so 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 God comes to Cain, he says, Where's your brother? Which is a crazy question, but not for now. Right? And he says, Ashomer Achianochi, right? You know, he says, Ehevelachicha, and he says, Hamana Hamana. So he says, Kold Meachicha, the blood of the, 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 the voice of the blood of your brother is calling out to me from the ground, from the earth that opened up its mouth, right? Lakacha, to receive the blood, the body of your brother from, from your hand. In other words, clearly, now, you could go Medrash, and you could say that after he killed Hevel, that the earth opened up and swallowed him up, and you could buy that, and you know, I mean, Kashbar who talked through a burning bush, he could do that too. But Pshat is, Cain buried him. Why did Cain bury him? Where does that come from? Why is Avram so desperate to bury Sarah in the earth? It's the first purchase, by the way, of a portion of land. The first purchase, the first ownership we have of Eretz Israel is a burial ground. Why? Right? Why, why do we, by the way, ask yourself a bigger question. You know, um, I, I remember, this is a, a story that... Uh, that made the rounds in the newspapers. I, I've given up trying to remember which stories I've told you and which not. But uh, there was a terrible, terrible story of the Commando Yami, the naval commanders. This is one of the elite units in the Israeli army. And they were, this is back in, I think, the early 90s, they were on a mission. Um, they're, you know, they were supposed to take out a Hezbollah gun position for whatever the reasons. Um, and something went south. Now, F.E.A. Tam, the Shana Becca has met him last year. I hope you guys will get to meet him this year. He's an incredible human being. Uh, was in Sayyid Matkal, fought in the Yom Kippur War. Is one of the few people alive who can actually say they single-handedly saved the state of Israel. He will not say it that way, but I'm telling you that. It's an unbelievable story, his story in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, but I don't want to tell it to you because he'll get here. And, but if he doesn't, I'll tell it to you. And he, he rose to be an aloof. He was a, a very, very high-ranking officer in the Israeli army. He was a Chabad Knesset, and um, and he was the commander of this mission. Okay, now he wasn't the commander on the ground. He was every Israeli mission has to have a high-ranking <coughs> commander who oversees the mission. He oversees uh, you know the the rehearsals and the staging and the maneuvers and everything, and make sure you know with these elite units, everything has to be done top. And he's the one who gives the final approval. Sometimes it needs the government so that it's a go. And the Israeli army tradition is that if you're the one who gives the approval and who oversees the mission, then you see them off. You know? You're going to send men into harm's way, look them in the eye before they go. And that's what he did. And then he was in the command post, sort of listening in on the mission. 
And, and the idea is that while the mission's going on, there's a very high-level commander who can give orders and make decisions strategically so they don't get stuck out in the open. The incursion was a success. However, they came in from the sea and whatever they did, they get close to their, to their mission point and something goes terribly wrong. To this day, by the way, they don't know exactly what happens. They don't think it was an intelligence brief. It's not clear whether Hezbollah just had luck or they had some tripwires that they weren't aware of. But all of a sudden, the mine exploded. Day turns into night. Uh, Hezbollah sees they're there, opens fire. The commander of the mission was killed. Um, his second in command was wounded in the first, like, 60 seconds. But that's okay, because they're, you know, they're, they're commander ami, and there's a system in the field, there's an automatic succession of command. Everyone knows who takes command in the event, in every unit, right? It's automatic, right? If the mempe, if the company commander is injured, the deputy company. If the deputy company is injured, you know which platoon command is. So there's a first sergeant, and the two officers fall, so he's now in, in command. And he does, afterwards they... Did a mituach, they did an analysis of the mission. Everything he's supposed to be. Splits up the unit, sets up the cover fire, everything they're supposed to be. And then there's a point, they get as close as they can get, and they're under this terrible fire, and they have to charge. And it's counterintuitive. Like, you, you think the natural thing to do is to take cover, but actually battles are won and lost in, within 60 to 90 seconds. And if you do it right, before the enemy has a chance to regroup, if you're charging up a hill nine times out of ten, you'll keep his head down, and that's how you take the day. It seems nuts, but it actually works. So he gives the order, Kadimaisteir. And everybody gets up, except for the guy with the negative, with the heavy machine gun. He doesn't get up. And the sergeant realizes he's not up, he's still lying on the ground. And he says, Nu, yalla. Like, and they hear this on the radio. Kadimaisteir, right? Okay? And... And this guy doesn't charge. And then the sergeant in the hullabaloo is wounded. And he's actually thrown into a ditch. They throw a grenade. And now three of the top commanders in succession are now either wounded or dead. F.E.A. Tom hears what's going on. And he decides, okay, we've got to abort this mission. This has gone from bad doors. So he gives the abort order. Thank God, Baruch Hashem, they were able to collect the bodies and bring them with him. They didn't leave them behind. They make it to the drop point. It's a complicated story how they get home. And they get home. When they land, when the helicopter lands, now you have to understand, I mean, these, these boys, they're like brothers. I mean, they train together, they live together, they eat together, everything. And they just lost their commander, their deputy company commander, the sergeant is wounded, and something went wrong. You can't let a unit like this kind of bask in their misery. You have to debrief them immediately, and if they need therapy, you have to get them out. There aren't that many units like this in the Israeli army. You can't afford to lose a unit like this. So they pretty much immediately take them into the debriefing. And debriefing, there's a Kaban army, psychologist, psychiatrist, FEA Tom is there. They do both sides, the operational side. Of so they're going around, going through the mission. At one point, they get to this point, they start with. And FEA Tom looks at this guy who had the heavy machine gun. And he says, what happened? What happened? And the guy looks at him. And unfortunately, this made the news. It sent shockwaves through the Israeli army. The guy looks at F.E.A. Tom and he says, Look, I can't explain to you how, but I knew that if I got up and charged up that hill, I wasn't coming home. I could feel it. And I wasn't willing to die for a stinking piece of land in Lebanon. That wasn't exactly how he said it, but whatever. So that made the news. What was this guy's basic issue? He didn't believe in his mission. And if you don't believe in your mission, you cannot possibly hope to succeed. 
So that raises a very interesting question with regards to our question in the parsha. Why do we need the land of Israel? Like, think about this for a minute. If if you ask the average Jew, and I don't mean the average religious Jew, go back to your hometowns, right? And, you know, wherever it is, and reach out to the average affiliated Jew who may not have a keep on his head, and ask him if he thinks we need a state of Israel. If he says we do, ask him why we need a state of Israel. Like, why do we need a Jewish state? So we don't have a Jewish state. So what will most people say? What do you think? Why do you think we need a Jewish state? Pardon? Protection. Uh, because 70 years ago, we discovered what happens when the Jewish people don't have a place to go. So we have to have a Jewish state so that if it happens again, and anybody who doesn't think it can happen again is living in a different reality, if it can happen again, there's a place to go. Every Jew has a home, a second home. You want to debate that? Here in Israel. Okay, great. In other words, if you think that a Holocaust might happen, you have to have a Jewish state. So let me, right? Make sense? So let me ask you an interesting question. What if you don't think a Holocaust can happen? You ask the average Jew in Vancouver, where there's an almost an 89% intermarriage rate. 89%. You ask the average Jew in Vancouver whether he thinks there's a Holocaust coming in America, he will absolutely tell you no. And he may well be right. So if you know there's no Holocaust, or you believe there's no Holocaust coming, you don't think the Jews are in danger, then why do you need a Jewish state? You don't need a Jewish state. Maybe we're better off without a Jewish state. Let's say you don't need a Jewish state, and everybody gets together and says, you know what, let's just give it to them. Let's give them the state. We're in America. We live in America. So you know what? There's no Middle East crisis anymore because we leave. We'll go there. And there's no risk of war. Iran isn't going to shoot America. Hamas. What are we? Why do you need a Jewish state? So, by the way, some people say you don't need a Jewish state. Yossi Balin was one of the architects of Oslo. And if you ask him, he doesn't believe this should be a Jewish state. You can agree with him or disagree with him. You've got to give him credit for being consistent. That's his belief. You don't need a Jewish state. He thinks there should be a state like every other state in the world. They should be Jewish. Israelis and Arab, Israelis and Christian, Israelis and... Why do you need to be Jewish? Then there are people who, they instinctively know that you need a Jewish state, but they can't explain why. I actually believe that Yitzhak Rabin, who I got to know a little bit, I actually, I met him a few times, I actually believe that Yitzhak Rabin believed that we need a Jewish state. I just don't think he had any clue why. And I've met a lot of people like that. They know that we need a Jewish state, they can't explain why. So let me ask you a question. Why do we need a Jewish state? Forget about whether the state of Israel is or not. Just pointless having a Jewish state. Why do we need a Jewish state? Identity. Pardon? Identity. Well, you can't have an identity without a land. Christians don't have a land. Like a centralized location to identify with. Great. New York. But it's not. Uh, Brooklyn? Come on. It has to be more than just identity. By the way, for 2,000 years, the Jewish people did not survive because of the state of Israel. Our identity was not based on a land. Our identity was based on Torah. So you don't need to be in Israel to have Torah. And yet the Torah says you need Israel. Yeah? Because we needed Israel before. And if we're, if we're a chain and we're all connected throughout our history, maybe inherently we don't need it. Since when Hashem came to operate and he said you should go to Israel from that. Yeah, why did he do that? 
Why? We're going to walk away tonight with an answer to that question. Why? Why do you need to be in Israel? Okay. Oh, there is an idea. There is an idea. It's a Kabbalistic idea, but it's actually found in the Gemara. It's a mystical idea that Israel is the only place in the world, like when it rains in Florida, it's not because the Floridians are, are behaving well. It's part of nature that it rains, right? But in Israel, when it rains, it's because we're doing something right. And when it doesn't rain, it's because we're not. We, we somehow, our action and how we behave affects the land, and the land affects us. Right? There is that idea. Right? Right? If, you, if you follow mitzvot, you will receive the rain. There is that idea. But why does it have to happen in Israel? So Kosh could do that anyway. But what is it about this place? Why do we have to have a land? Right? You want to suggest something? Yeah, sure. Like the Jewish people and like the land of Israel are interdependent. Like we both have like inherent Kedusha and like when we connect we can like we both truly flourish. Hmm? We only... There, there is something that happens here. The question is what is it? So let me share with you an interesting idea. Right? People make a mistake. You know, Christianity is a religion. It's a collection of ideas. It's not specific to any place, despite the fact that there are holy places for the Christians in Israel, and they have the Holy See in Rome, right? But it's a... You can be a Christian American, right? Uh, sorry, an American Christian... You can be a French Christian, because Christianity is not about where you are. It's about what you believe. It's a collection of beliefs. Okay. And that's a religion. It's a collection of beliefs. And it's not specific to a place. And then you have a nation. Now, a nation is not a nation unless it has a place. Like the French nation. The German nation. The British nation. You're British because you live in England. You could have Christian English. You could have... You know, you could have Buddhist English. You know, you could have Buddhist French and Christian French, right? You're France. You're French because you live in France. Now you take Frenchmen and you put them in Arizona. They're just people who sound funny. And their kids, notwithstanding Palestinian refugees and that mythology, right? They're not French anymore. They may come from France. They're not French, right? My, my grandson... So his father, my son-in-law, was born in Israel. And his father, his parents, were born in France. So people say his parents, they're like, like, we're, like we're Americans, they're French. We're not really Americans anymore, but okay. But our kids may speak perfectly English. Nobody thinks they're Americans. My grandson, he doesn't even have American citizenship. And he's not French, because he's not in France. Now if he went to France, and he lived there a bunch of years, he'd be French. He'd be a French Israeli, he'd be French. So the question is, which are we? I think the pe- reason people get confused is because we're both. Judaism is a religion, but it's also a nation. Now, why do you need nations? A nation is a group of people that Hashem put in a certain place because they cannot accomplish what they're meant to accomplish unless they're in that place. The French, the British, the Germans, 
They have something to give the world. And in order to give it to the world, they have to be in that place. That's where their energy is. That's their space. That's their place. Right? Even the French have what to contribute to the world. Right? But they can't do it if they're not in France. What is it they have to give to the world? So, that's an interesting question. Now, for the Jewish people, for whatever the reason, HaKadosh Baruch told us that this is the place where we can accomplish our mission. To be an Orla Goyim, to be an Am Kadosh. Right? There's this Kabbalistic idea that the world was created, the Evan Shasiya, the Evan Yitzira, which sits up on Harabayit, this, this foundation stone, is the source of creation. If that's true, whatever that means, why does Hashem tell Avram to go back to Eretz Yisrael? Because you have to get back to the beginning of it all. There's an energy that you tap into in this place that you cannot tap into anywhere else. And that energy is part of how we achieve what we're meant to achieve in this world. Right? Who are we supposed to be? Right? We're supposed to be an Am Kadosh. Kadoshim to you. So Kadusha, as we mentioned in a couple of our classes this week, means that I separate myself, but it also means that I become a vehicle for bringing Hashem into the world. So what better place to bring Hashem into the world than the place where Hashem was first rediscovered by Avram Avinu? What better place to bring Hashem into the world than the place that exists, that surrounds a place where you could feel the presence of Hashem, Harabai, Temple Mount, more than any place else in the world, at least from a Jewish perspective, right? So this is the place where we can accomplish our mission. What Yaakov Avinu is telling Yosef is that, you know, a person is living in Egypt, where you... Where you're laid to rest, that says a lot about who you are and where you belong. And Yaakov is making a statement, I may be living in Egypt, but I'm not Egyptian. The culture, the emunah, the belief that, that we cultivated, the world needs that. So bury me in Eretz Israel, because you need to know that this is not home. And Yosef says the same thing. I may have been sent here, my kids may have been brought up here, but this is not home. And therefore Yosef wants to be buried there. Right? And that seems to be the message, right, of, of right? What, 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 is, what does the Kosh Baruch tell Avraham Avinu? Fascinating, right? He says to him, I'm going to give you this land. This is in Breshit, Perikit, Gimel, Pasuk, Tedvav, 13.15. Right? And your offspring will be like the dirt of the land. Do you ever think about that? You've heard that blessing before? Do you ever hear, do you ever think about that? You should be like the dirt. What kind of a bracha is that? So, so the pastor continues, Right? You won't be able to count the dirt in the land, and just like you can't count the dirt, you won't be able to count the Jewish people. By the way, that's not true. We are very countable. We are not as a huge... But if you're going to tell somebody it's going to be like something that's countless, that you can't count, what would you say? Be like the stars that's so beautiful in the sky, heavenly, whatever. Like the dirt. Can you imagine I'm standing under a chuppah and a couple gets married? And I want to give them a bracha. And I say, you should have so many children like cockroaches running around the house. So that'd be the sky. Who would say that under a chuppah? That's what this sounds like. So what is dirt? Dirt, on the one hand, is indestructible. In fact, the Gemara says... That if you if you if, if you give something somebody to watch somebody something to watch, and he puts it on his bed and he locks his house, but he doesn't lock his house, whatever, and then it gets stolen. Is he obligated? Is he not? Is it pshia? 
But if he buries it in the ground, he's not liable. Because the ground cannot be destroyed. Fire can't destroy it. It's reasonable to assume a thief won't find it indestructible. Right? You can't destroy earth. Right? But there's something else about earth. What else is powerful about earth? Earth on its own is nothing. But if you put a seed and you add a little water, it's in earth that things grow. Earth is all about potential. Right? That's why we're compared to earth. Because, because we have the potential to grow something so beautiful that the world becomes a better place. And in order to do that, the Jewish people are meant to be in this place. So I'm not talking to the individual. I don't judge an individual. You know, uh, I remember when I decided to come to Israel, so it wasn't an easy thing at all. And I don't think anybody could have faulted me if I'd stayed in America. I had it all set. I was going to go to Columbia. I was brought up in America, right? So you're brought up in America. Your parents are in America. Maybe you feel you can serve the Jewish people better there. That's a legitimate question. You have to struggle with that question. But if you ask me where the Jewish people should be en masse, that's very clear. The Torah is very clear about where we belong. We belong here. And that's what this project is saying. You know? And I don't personally, not that it's my place to even, you don't really need my approbation one way or the other. I don't have an issue with a person who leaves Israel, goes back to America, goes to college, studies, grows. Maybe he does Parnassah, maybe he gives Staka. You know, I don't know. It's a good question. But I think a boy who leaves Israel doesn't at least struggle with the question. He's missed something. You know? You know what the reason to go back to America is? If you think that you can contribute more to the world there. That is a legitimate question. I had a roommate in Gush. I'm still friendly with him. And uh, we went to high school together. We were roommates together. And we talked about this when I was Shana Aleph and I decided I was going to stay. And he was going back. And I remember at one point he was going back to YU. I said to him, why are you going back? Like, you love Israel. Why wouldn't you stay? He said, honestly, he was talking about going into Chimnach and wanted to become a rabbi. He said, I just don't think that I could have an impact here like I could have an impact there. We used to debate this, but looking back, he was right. He struggled with this question. He felt he had more to give. He's a rav. He's done a lot of mitzvahs in his life. Who am I to say Rav Moshe Feinstein stayed in America? But at least to struggle with the question. That's, I think. And isn't it interesting that this is the, the idea with which we end Sefer Breshit as we go into 200 years of exile? know that you have a mission and that whatever you go through, you will come home one day. Don't give up on that mission. That's this portion. Yes? So if we associate land with nationhood and nationhood with um, purpose, why does that purpose... First of all, what is the purpose exactly? Why is it you be filled there and not in Brooklyn, like we were saying before? Oh, well, if one of the missions... I mean, this is a longer discussion, but if one of the missions of the Jewish people is to be a light unto the nations, to be an or laguyim, one way of understanding that is that, you know, when Hashem creates the world, right, so it's going to be everybody together. I'm not talking about what's literal and what's allegorical, but at least in the Torah, you have Adam Arishon, first Adam, first man, first person with the soul. And they have children and children's children, and the whole world should believe in God. And the whole world should be ethical, and the whole world should be monotheistic. It doesn't work. Within a few generations, they sink into a morass of idolatry. So you know what Hashem says? Okay, we'll try again. This isn't working. Too violent. We'll try again. Now we've taught you what doesn't work. Let's try again. Noah. Noah is Adam too. The whole world descends from Noah. And again, it doesn't work. Right? The whole world trying to be a... a, a you don't need a role model because everybody's supposed to worship God. Right? You shouldn't need a, 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 a leader. Everybody should be doing it. 
doesn't work. So, uh, so then Hashem waits. And I sometimes feel like the first 20 generations from Adam to Noach and Noach to Avram was to teach us what does not work. So now Hashem waits. This time Hashem doesn't come to Noach, to Avram. Avram has to find Hashem. At least that's how Jewish tradition looks at it. And then Hashem says to Avram, okay, you're going to go. You're going to leave here. You're going to separate yourself. You're going to go to the other side. The whole world on one side. Me'ever achat. Ve'avram me'ever. That's why we're called Ivrim. Right? We're going to separate ourselves. Kedusha. And ve'nivrechu v'chat kol mishpachot adama. You will be a model. Through you will we bless the world. We can't get the whole world to do it once. Let's create one society that the world can learn from. So we're meant to be a model. By the way, I'm not convinced we're the only society that's meant to model anything. But that's our mission. To be a model, to be a model of ethical excellence. Now, in order to be a model, you have to be visible. And you have to be able to create a society. You can't create a society in Brooklyn. There's a lot of mitzvahs you can do in Brooklyn. And there's a lot of Kiddush Hashem you can do in Brooklyn. And when you create an aid society, when you do chesed, you know the Boston Rebbe, who's a big anav. I don't know if you picked up on that. Tremendously modest person. He happens to be a tremendous Talmud Chacham. But he's a very modest person. And he gives off, oh, I don't know, whatever it is, a very healthy way to be. Did you imagine that a Rebbe would behave like that, right? You know? So his father started this incredible chesed system. Right? Anybody in the Boston area. He started an incredible outreach system for college students when nobody was doing that. Right? And in the model of what he created, like any Jew who comes, and, and also, by the way, a lot of non-Jews, needs a liver transplant, needs a heart transplant, needs a kidney transplant, is very ill, needs a hospital, they set up places for them to stay. They're not the only chassidus that does. Satma does this. So that's a kiddush Hashem. You're creating a model of what it could be like. But here in Israel, here in Israel, you have an Israeli army. You, you, you have the opportunity to show the world how an army should behave. How an army should behave. I'll give you one example, by the way. In 1982, on a bright June morning at about 5 a.m., 20,000 troops crossed the border into Lebanon. Beginning of the Lebanon War. Now it's called the First Lebanon War. We didn't call it the First then. It was just the Lebanon War, right? And that's intense. 20,000 Israeli soldiers in the space of a day entered the invaded country. For all the right reasons, Katusha, they're firing on their own. Okay. They estimated about a quarter of a million Israeli soldiers spent significant time in Lebanon over the course of almost 20 years. From 1982 till 2000. Till we pulled back. In all of that time, with all of those men, there was not one reported case of rape. Not one instance where a Jewish soldier raped an Arab. And by the way, there wasn't one case of reported rape in the army. There wasn't a military investigation of such a rape. There wasn't a claim of a specific case of rape by the Lebanese. Not by the Lebanese Christian. There were many such cases with the South Lebanese army. Not the Israeli army. Not even by the Arab Red Crescent Society. There was no... That's unbelievable. I challenge any army in the world to stand up. In that statistic, it's a Jewish army. That's what an army is meant to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the Israeli army is perfect. But I think that, you know, there's a, there's a, a general who is a British general named Kemp. And he was one of the top commanders on the ground, um, I believe, in Afghanistan. And he's become very pro-Israel. I don't know exactly why. Not a Jewish guy. And I heard him speak once. He spoke at a memorial for, um, for, for my cousin who whatever in Ranana. And um, don't know how they got to him. And it was unbelievable to hear what he had to say. And he said that he went to, he was part of a commission that investigated you know, what was going on here in Israel, in Aza. He said, 
when he discovered what the Israelis were doing to protect civilians, enemy civilians, he said that's what made him pro-Israel. He said it was mind-boggling to him to see the lengths to which Israelis... You know, there was a joke. There's a, there's a concept. The Israeli Air Force drops leaflets. You know, if you want to take out a Hamas position, what's a smart thing to do? You wait until they're all in the position. You don't tell them you're coming, right? And you blow them to smithereens. What's the problem? The Hamas became, they put themselves in an apartment building. They put themselves under a hospital. Now, international law, Geneva Convention is, that if soldiers occupy a position that is now a legitimate target of war, because otherwise every enemy army will just put themselves in the hospital. So if you, if you say that you can't bomb them, then you'll be killing civilians a different way because everybody will sit themselves under civilians and then civilians get killed. So that's why the law is that if uh, uh, an Israeli position, an Arab position, any position, is sitting in a civilian population, that makes it a legitimate target, and it's not the problem of the conqueror. And therefore, you know, Russians and, and, and Arabs, they don't, they don't, they don't dis- differentiate. Western armies are much more sensitive to this. Okay, so they try not to kill civilians. What do, the, what do the Israelis do? The Israelis do three things. The first thing that they do is they drop leaflets sometimes as much as 48 hours in advance, we are going to be attacking this area. You need to evacuate. They drop them in Arab. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of leaflets polluting the, the, the air over Aza. The second thing they do is they, fo- they phone their cell phones. They actually have a, a unit in the army, it's part of Shemar Maratayim, that phones civilians to say, there's going to be a bombing tomorrow afternoon, you need to get out. And just in case that doesn't work, they developed a special bomb. It's called a tfika badelet. It's a knock on the door. It's a bomb that's designed to land on a building and just create a knock, just a bang. It shakes the building a little bit. Nothing gets damaged, right? And it means that five or ten minutes later, there's going to be a missile that hits the building. So any civilians left, no, right? In fact, there was a, there was a, a, a YouTube that went around during the, the Aza War, during a Tuketan, and there's a video, I don't know if it's real or not, but uh, there are like three guys and they're on some Israeli position and they're like clowning around. So they took a YouTube, like it was funny. And uh, they had a cell phone and they made a phone call. They found the number of a hotel in Aza. And they called up the hotel in Aza, right? And you hear the guy on the other line with an accent, like, you know, he sounds Arabic. And he answers in Arabic and they said, is this the, uh, the Gaza City uh, Hotel? And he says, yes, sir. Yes, sir. This is the Gaza Hotel. Are you open for business? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Don't believe what you read. We're open for business, you know. So we would like to reserve a space. So he says, oh, very good. Uh, yes, this weekend. We are coming uh, to you this weekend. So he says, oh, how many of you? Uh, it will be about 12 of us. Oh, really? How? Okay, well, when will you be arriving? Don't worry. You'll hear a knock on the roof. <laughs> and they burst into laughter, and the guy hangs up the phone, right? And it's and all the Israelis get it. Like any Israeli who saw that video that summer, hit potsets. There's something so powerful about that, right? You can't create that in Brooklyn. And I'm just giving you two examples. There are many, many more of how politics is supposed to work, and so on and so forth. So, by the way, do I think we're there yet? No, we're not there yet. We don't. We're not close to being the model society we're meant to be, but we're getting there. Is it kind of paradoxical that by us trying to be a light of the nations, we're like and to to be here to be an Israeli state that makes a lot of other people, a lot of non-Jews and non-Israelis, view us as the bad guy? 
by us by us trying to do be the good guy we're viewed as the bad guy. Look, you pay a price sometimes. You pay a price for what's called in Hebrew Torah Neshek purity of arms. You pay a price for choosing the more difficult path. And I think there are a lot of people. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.